engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. It's Eric Erickson here. Welcome Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. The White House this afternoon, Sarah Sanders out on the White House lawn saying uh, they're not going to say whether or not the president is going to sign the spending deal uh, between Republicans and Democrats. Here's the outline of this deal. The president would get $1.38 billion to expand border fencing. Uh, That would be to renovate and to expand. The Border Patrol says it wanted $1.8 billion. They would get $1.3 of that $1.8. The president also wanted a number of beds uh, increased in the detention facilities down there for asylum seekers. The Democrats only wanted 11,000 beds. The president wanted 50,000 beds. They're going to settle on 40,000 beds. Uh, So they're headed in the president's direction. And Republicans are still not very happy about it. The president wanted much more money for his wall. And he's being very coy this afternoon with whether he's going to sign it. Sean Hannity and other conservative uh, voices out there very, very angry about the deal preferring another government shutdown. I will tell you this. I have talked to two different people in the White House over the last 48 hours uh, as very, very, very close to the president. And these people tell me the president, as of now, intends to sign it. He is being coy on whether or not he intends to sign it. Because he has given access to so many people to him in the conservative movement uh, and doesn't want the blowback from them as this bill is mounting, the president believes the pressure is useful. You know, if you got a bunch of conservatives out there screaming, saying, don't sign it, don't sign it, don't sign it, don't sign it, uh, it, it gives Republicans in Congress uh, enough of a hint that they're going to make sure they need to, they're going to fight on every last point on this so that the president can take something. Now, behind the scenes, I am told that the president is being pressured even by conservative stalwarts like David Perdue to get this deal signed and find other money to build the wall. The problem is the Republicans believe the government shutdown hurt them. Now, my buddy Chip Roy was on yesterday. He's now a congressman from South Texas. He's been on the program a number of times um, since taking Congress. I think this is since getting elected. This is the first time. By the way, Democrats, you should know, in Congress are blaming Chip Roy for the tax cuts, uh, saying that it was actually amounts to a tax increase on the middle class. He wasn't in Congress when it was passed. Nonetheless, uh, what do the Democrats care? Um, The problem here that the president is going to have is conservatives are very upset with this deal. And a lot of them voted for the president because of the wall. And they're not going to take this when they wanted 5.7, and even that didn't get them what they wanted, a coast-to-coast border wall. The president has tried to sell, I think legitimately so. I think he's done a good job of making the case he only needed 5.7 because there are some parts of the country where you don't need a wall. There's this thing called the Grand Canyon. It stretches south. Uh, with the Rio Grande and and the the Colorado River, and uh, there are natural barriers down there that make it very difficult. You can go days without food and water down there. In the New Mexico and the Arizona area, there are parts of it that are uh, federal parkland. 
And they find dead bodies out there all the time from people who tried to cross and thought they'd be close to civilization and weren't. The major boarding crossings happen in Texas for a reason. Most of the land along the border in Texas is privately held land. That presents problems, though, for the president. And I know of two conversations that have happened in the last week with the president where people who support him finding other money have also made this case to him of it's not going to be as easy as he thinks, the, um, why an emergency declaration wouldn't work. Here's what you need to know about the emergency declaration as this moves forward. The president is considering doing the emergency declaration. I think it would be bad. I think it would be a bad precedent. I think if President Trump does it, you'll see future Democrats do it for things like climate change. Uh, when the president can't do stuff because he and Congress can't get along, doesn't give him the right to do an emergency declaration. That makes him a king. I think it's a terrible precedent. It undermines the separation of powers. He shouldn't do it. There are other ways for him to do these things. But there's a problem with all of the ways, and this isn't getting enough conversation. Thankfully, though, it is getting a lot of conversation in the White House. And that has to do with Congress's powers of condemnation, the power under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights for the federal government to take private land for public use. There are some problems with the president, and some of the advice he was given early on was bad advice. And thankfully, good advisors have gotten in front of him and, and corrected the record. So uh, we have in this country the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. Um, the Fifth Amendment says this, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in times of war or public danger. No per, nor shall any person be subject to the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor shall private property be taken for public use Without just compensation, without just compensation, that is the eminent domain power. Uh, the eminent domain power has a long and storied history, and one of the areas of the eminent domain power is uh, goes all the way back to the 1600s. The property of subjects, this is from the Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius. You should probably understand this so you get where we're headed. The property of subjects is under the eminent domain of the state so that the state or he who acts for it may use and even alienate and destroy such property, not only in the cases of extreme necessity, in which case private persons have the right over the property of others, but for the ends of public utilities to which ends those who founded civil society may be supposed to have intended that private ends should give way. But it is to be added that when it is done, the state is bound to make good the loss. Now, what does all that mean? This is a, it means we're going all the way back to before the country even existed, that this term kind of laid itself out eminent domain. It means that the government can take your land for a public purpose. If you'll recall, uh, back during the 2000s, there was a case before the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court found, I think badly found, that the government could actually take your private property and give it to a different private property holder if that private property holder said they could get more value out of the land uh, for state property tax purposes. I think the Supreme Court got that wrong. It was a 5-4 terrible decision. Most state governments amended their constitutions to actually prohibit that. And most states, including Georgia now, you can only take private land for public use. But, 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 but. 
there are cases in the Supreme Court that go back to the 1800s, and what they say is that the government can't actually take your land for public use without compensating you, and they can't take your land without express permission from Congress. There are Supreme Court cases that go back to the 1840s that say Congress has to specifically authorize the taking of private land in imminent domain situations, in legislation. So now there are a hundred different examples of presidential powers being able to be used as emergency declarations. So, for example, there, there, are, there are ample ways under the Constitution and under federal law that the president can declare a national emergency and the president can do things that he otherwise couldn't do. But Congress very specifically never gave eminent domain power in any of those pieces of legislation. So as has been explained to the president in the last week, if he were to declare a national emergency under federal law, none of the emergency declarations give the president the power of eminent domain. And the Supreme Court, going back to before the Civil War, has said that if the president were to use eminent domain, there has to be a specific piece of legislation cited. On top of that, during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, the Supreme Court determined that the military domestically can never use eminent domain power unless the Congress specifically allows the military eminent domain power on a case-by-case basis. In other words, all of the land in Texas on which the president wants to build a wall is privately held. And yes, there is a law from the government allowing that land to be purchased by the federal government to build a wall. But the law that is in question is not subject to an emergency declaration. And there are no emergency declarations under federal law that give the president imminent domain power. On top of that, the president can't direct the military under federal law to seize private land to build the wall. So the only real way for the president to get this done is through federal appropriation. He can't just go out and take people's private land. Now, where can the president build a wall? Well, the federal government through New Mexico and parts of Arizona owns vast quantities of land along the border, and the president can build the wall in those places. The problem is, if you go back to the State of the Union, one of the things the president said is that he was going to allow the Border Patrol to set the parameters by which the wall would be built. And the Border Patrol, going back to the Obama administration, has said those parts of of land that the federal government owns in Arizona and New Mexico, those are the ones, those are the last ones we need a wall on because the amount of land is so vast down there, nobody can go through it without dying. We don't have to worry about it. It's it's the private land in Texas we we need to build a wall on. And that comes full circle to the problem. The president's going to have specific congressional authorization, and he doesn't have it, except for this $1.3 billion. So if he takes the money, he can build parts of the wall. He just can't build more than that in Texas. So what I'm saying, this is kind of painting you the huge big picture of where we are right now with this fight and why the president is hesitant to go the national emergency route, knowing what's in store with him with a legal fight. 
what I am telling you, if he takes the $1.3 billion that Congress is offering and he signs it, he'll keep us out of a government shutdown and he'll be able to build 55 miles of wall, 55 miles of wall that the Border Patrol has said, yes, please, we want this built. I think I need to start calling her Chairman Moo. Uh, so, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Chairman Moo, instead of Chairman Mao, Chairman Moo, she wants to ban cows. She had this revelation, uh, that she walked out of a committee room and there were a bunch of homeless people lined up and she was wondering why all the homeless people were lined up. Turns out that lobbyists pay homeless people to sit in line for them for their meetings because the first people in line are guaranteed a spot in a committee hearing. And so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was horrified to learn that homeless people are getting paid to sit in line so that lobbyists can be assured of getting seats in various meetings. Now, the hilarious part here it was, is it was a hearing on legalizing marijuana uh, that all the homeless people were sitting in line for. And she was really upset about this. Think about this. I, I mean, I, I get the idea of the, these people don't care about the homeless people. They're just there. But they're getting paid. They're getting paid. And my question is, is, is Chairman Moo more upset that the homeless people are getting paid and not paying taxes on what they're getting paid? Or is she upset that they're getting paid at all? I mean, what, what, how's, why she, she should like this idea that homeless people are earning money. Of course, she wants to pay people who are unwilling to work. Um, by the way, you should know that the Democrats, uh, Ed Markey, he is the Senator from Massachusetts. He, wants to he's the senate author of the green new deal and he believes mitch mcconnell is sabotaging the green new deal how is mcconnell sabotaging the green new deal he's offered to bring it up for a vote in the senate i i'm not making that up folks um ed markey does not want the green new deal brought up for a vote in the senate he said if mitch mcconnell brings it up for a vote it would be sabotaging it now i gotta play you some audio when we come back college students were asked about the green new deal and they love it they were asked about the individual platforms in it well wait till you hear what they said We're sitting here talking. I'm I'm having to. By the way, the, our phone lines are open 404 750 wsb talk. I'm sitting here explaining the budget deal to you guys and get a phone call and they hang up and then they call back. I'm like, great. Have I not paid a bill? What? And go to break. They kindly left a voice. As the president was calling. <laughs> No, I'm not making that up. Um, Madeline, the president secretary, was on the phone, um, left a voicemail. I called back. They say hi. <laughs> Y'all, I, I just, you know what? There, there's, You know schadenfreude is, is the German word for when you take uh, pleasure in the misery of others? There's got to be, there needs to be a German word for taking pleasure in the misery of 
other truly awful people. Uh, watching bad things happen to bad people should and taking pleasure from it should have its own word. And um, that's that's what I'm doing here today. And that's all y'all need to know about that. We'll we'll refrain from watching from names and whatnot of that. But man, I just treat other people kindly and. Maybe they'll reciprocate one day. Now, we've got to move on. So I, I've got to play this this audio for you. So a, a the college reform group went to college campuses around the country asking students what they thought of the Green New Deal. And I just want you to listen to the student reactions. The number one trending thing on social media yesterday was her Green New Deal. It's a plan to combat climate change. It was already endorsed by multiple Democrat frontrunners for president in 2020. Yeah. Based on what you've heard of the plan, would you say you view it favorably or unfavorably? I view it favorably. I think that we need to cut our reliance on fossil fuels. It's definitely a great idea. I like that it's uh, progressive. I like that it is going to push the world forward in the way we need to be. I would say it's a favorable act. Just from like knowing like who's endorsed it and just like some like little things, it sounds great. I think it'd be great for us. I think if we didn't do that, then we're going to be killing ourselves basically. Got it. So we need to take care of ourselves. I think it's very important to, to support that. Anything that would reduce our dependence on fossil fuels is really important. Well, I definitely support this movement. Some of the things in the plan I want to get your opinion on. So the plan says within 10 years we're going to completely outlaw coal, natural gas, and oil. So gasoline, anything like that in 10 years. Mm, I don't I don't agree with that. <laughs> to be honest with you, I think we need those things to live. But I do not think it is feasible in 10 years. I don't think that that would be something that would be able to be done in such a short amount of time. I think 10 years is a little extreme because I feel like there's such a big uh, global market and economic impact of oil businesses, albeit it might not be good for the environment, but there's you can't deny there's a big economic impact to these companies. What's your thought on that? Sounds like a reach, honestly. <laughs> Do you think that's feasible? No. If you're unwilling to work, we will still supply help for your salary and help no. for a living wage. No, absolutely not. If you're not willing to contribute to society, then I don't think that the people who are contributing should pay for you. Mm. So I, I disagree with that. I feel like it kind of sends the core message of, you know, you can just get away with not doing anything and, you know, getting money. It's kind of stupid. I don't like that personally. Unwilling isn't the best way to go about things. Like, I don't want to go to college, but I have to get a job, so. Everyone needs to contribute. That's the only way society works. Um, I don't know about that one. I think that if you're unwilling, that I don't know if you should receive money for that if you didn't want to go to class if you were unwilling to go to class should i still give you a good grade no <laughs> um yeah like people definitely need a job and need to work eliminating almost all air travel with high-speed rails what's your thought on that uh i feel like it's kind of like the same one it's like i think like 10 years is a little extreme for that i don't think it should be eliminated altogether uh i think it's definitely it can be an option i think we should the more options we have the better i think that's drastic i haven't heard of that one yet yeah, I can't see that happening either, honestly. We've gone, come so far to get to this point where we are right now with using these resources, and to say, oh, we have to get rid of it in 10 years seems a little too much to me. Who's going to pay for all of it? Who's going to offset the trillions of dollar cost that it would be? Right. I don't know. Okay. Nobody knows. Okay. Like, it's kind of like, who's really going to pay? I don't, like... Based on what you've heard from these, does it change your perception of the plan at all? Yeah. A lot. Sometimes you need to take extreme measures to save the environment, but I don't think that is like, I think it's a bit too extreme. <laughs> Sometimes you got to be extreme, just not that extreme. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty much where we are here. The more people find out about this, which is probably why Ed Markey, the Senate Democrat sponsor, says it would be sabotaging the bill to give it a vote. You know, for perspective, most of the Democrats running for the Senate are, are running for the presidency are in the Senate and they've all endorsed the plan and none of them actually want to vote on it. Tells you everything you need to know about Chairman Moo and her aggressive agenda. Now I'm getting texts from the White House. So, nonetheless. <laughs> it's so, y'all, it really is surreal. I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I guess now I, I'll, I'll go into a little more detail. Several weeks ago, <laughs> everybody laughed. So, we, I was putting up our Christmas decorations. This is like the second week in January, I guess it was. Because, um, you know, I leave everything up until January 5th. So, uh, we're at the, I'm at the storage unit. We've got this giant Christmas tree, and I'm trying to push it into the into the storage unit and, and I got my hands up inside the tree and I'm trying to do it and, and the phone rings and I look at my watch and it says unknown number so I'm like oh, I'm seeing it and they want me on TV and I keep working it in get in the car and it calls back it's like I don't want to be on TV today so I don't answer the phone so they call back a third time and I was like I guess they're really desperate to have me on and I pick up the phone and the lady says is this Eric Erickson I said yes she said please hold for the president of the United States I was like ah <laughs> And it was it was the president and vice president were in the Oval Office. The the vice president and I have been friends forever. He had my cell phone number with him. And the president was just calling to thank me for something I had written. <laughs> it was just it was surreal. And now here I am having a radio talk show with you people and <laughs> the president's office calls. <laughs> Oh, and now they're texting me. So anyway, let's go to the phones. Uh, Aaron from Noonan. Welcome. Hey, what's up, Eric? It, it's so great to talk to you. I listen to you and the WSB boys every single day, all day. Well, thank you very much. And I should note that, that you are appropriately spelled on our call screening program as A.A. Ron. So, A.A. Ron, what's yeah. up? <laughs> I was just called to say, you know, I'm 24 and I absolutely hate the term millennial because I guess I'm the only one or one of the only ones that moved out of their parents' basement at 18 and went and got a job and been busting my you know, butt ever since. But I just want to let you know that there's a lot more millennials out there that are, are rooting for the Republican Party than it seems. Well, God bless you. I I, I appreciate it, and it, it's good to know. And I, I do have to say, I'm encountering more and more millennials who, when they finally actually pay attention to their pay stub, understand why so many of us are conservatives. Right. And also, this all these little college brats that are talking about supporting this Green New Deal— well, they need to go work for a day and let them change and actually listen to how dumb it really sounds. Yeah, amen. Aaron, thanks very much for the phone call from Noonan. All right, we got to take a quick Profit Center timeout. I know, I know some of you would rather hear me talk, but when we go to commercial, I hear angels throwing money at me, which makes me happy. So we'll be back. Chuck Schumer is trying to recruit Amy McGrath to run against Mitch McConnell. Yes, Uh, McGrath was a Marine veteran. Uh, She ran as a congressional candidate in Kentucky and lost. And now Chuck Schumer wants her to run against Mitch McConnell. Think about that for a minute. You got the Democratic leader trying to find someone to run against the the Republican leader, which is largely unheard of. When Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell were in leadership positions, they had a tacit agreement that they would not help people run against the other. 
uh, Schumer uh, throwing that to the end. You know, that's fine. I, I hope there's a more acrimonious relationship between the two. McConnell gets credited with lots of fights in the Senate, but oftentimes he pulls his punches with the Democrats, uh, except on issues where it helps him. And one of those issues is judges. And so now maybe he'll amp it up on everything else as well. That will be a good thing. Uh, we've got to move into state politics when we come back because there are some issues floating around in the state legislature we need to pay attention to right now. Uh, and an issue of Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp has formed his Georgians First Commission. I've got details on it when we come back. Uh, he's also rolling out their health care initiative. Uh, I actually I want to digest the health care initiative bits a little more before we really get into them tonight because there's a lot there. They are not as they are not embracing Obamacare. Uh, they're asking for a waiver. They do recognize they need to expand the number of people uh, who can have access to health care insurance in Georgia. Uh, they don't want to do as much as Obamacare requires, so they're asking for a waiver from Obamacare and uh, designing a plan just for Georgia. They're not actually modeling it on other states. Um, when we come back, though, the Democrats in the Georgia legislature have been accusing the Republicans of doing nothing, of taking advantage of people, of wasting money, a host of issues. Well, the Democrats in Georgia— have proposed major legislation to make a dramatic change in the state. It would be the biggest change in Georgia political history in probably three decades. They want a pay raise. Yes, that's their major policy initiative. The Democrats in Georgia are proposing legislation to jack up Democrat pay in Georgia. Uh, they want to go from $16,200 a year to over $58,000 a year as part-time state legislators. That's their big initiative. It really is just, just a striking contrast in the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, so we'll get into that. And the Georgians' first commission, the Brian Kemp wants to make it easier to get rid of regulations that hurt small businesses in the state of Georgia. He's put together an all-star panel of people from across the state and across political ideologies to make that happen. We'll get into those details and a whole lot more when we come back. Welcome back to the second hour here of Eric Erickson on Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. The phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Don't forget, by the way, you can get me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at EW Erickson. Uh, and I try not to be political on Instagram. If you want to see the, the cooking pictures, of, oh gosh, I forgot. I was supposed to send out my recipe today at, at noon. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I got busy uh, and had to actually be on the road for most of the day. So I guess I'll send out my recipe tomorrow. It's going to be roast chicken. I've been working on a roast chicken recipe for weeks and weeks to try to get it right for this recipe with a delicious rub. Uh, you brine it so it stays juicy, so you can't really overcook it. It's difficult. If you want it, text the word recipe to 345-345. I promise I'll, I'll get that done tomorrow. Now, 
in the state legislature, there is news out uh, that some of them want to pay roads. So now, you let, I want to put this in perspective for you. This is not a Republican initiative, and you need to know that it's not a Republican initiative. And that's what I find so brazen here is that uh, a number of Senate Democrats in Georgia, they're the ones who have been saying that this is a do-nothing Republican legislature. Uh, on and on and on it goes. They want a pay raise. They they actually want a pay raise. Senators say Jordan, Harbison, and Sims. Oh, the interesting one is, is Jeff Mullis of Chickamauga. He's actually uh, one of the senior Republicans. He's on this, uh, and, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And it's interesting that he's aligning himself with Democrats. The Democrats in Georgia want a giant, big, fat pay raise. Right now, the state legislature in Georgia has paid $16,200 a year, plus you get stipends for travel and things like that. Uh, but $16,200, this would raise them, they would base it on median income in the state, so they would raise their salary from about $16,200 to over $58,000 a year for part-time members of our state legislature. And it's the Democrats who are doing this. It's not the Republicans. It's the Democrats who are sponsoring this. So to put this in perspective, Democrats in the state of Georgia who have been saying that the Republicans are out to get the people, the Republicans aren't working for the people, the Republicans are sticking it to the people, the Republicans are taking advantage of the people, these Democrats want the people to pay them more money to not do any more job than they're already doing. Oh, but it's so hard. Here's the reality. Some of these people want to live off a part-time salary, and if they can get it up to $58,000 a year, they will gladly do it. It will become their full-time job. And I don't think we want full-time legislators in the state. There are already some of them who do. they so-called community activists in the legislature. Most of them are Democrat, by the way. They will use that $58,000 a year to be a permanent legislator and permanently campaign. And the permanent campaigning going on under the Gold Dome right now is bad enough. But this this really is a just fantastic demonstration of the, the perspective and the differences between Republicans and Democrats in Georgia right now. The Democrats are out there screaming about everything the Republicans do while the Republicans are trying to seriously legislate on issues like health care, on issues like uh, helping rural Georgia, on issues like transportation on issues like a attracting new businesses to the state and what are the democrats signature initiative right now in the legislature the one predominant major democrats are rallying around giving themselves a pay raise these are not backbenchers in the state senate who are doing this these are democrats who have been involved for some time in state politics and they're the ones who want you to raise their pay to fifty-eight thousand dollars. it is a heck of a perspective on what they're trying to do Speaking of the Georgia legislature, Governor Kemp has started the Georgians' first commission. Uh, he has appointed, actually, a friend of mine, Kay Joyner, hadn't seen him in forever, uh, is going to be one of the co-chairs of this, James Whitley, the founder of Landmark Properties. Uh, also included will be Debbie Alford, the Georgia lottery chief, uh, Rick Desai, a leader of the Indian American community, I like point of it, uh, the RNC figure, Sam Holmes, the vice chairman of C.B. Richard Ellis, and then he's also hired former state representative Scott Hilton of Gwinnett County, a banking executive, as the director of implementation for this. Now, what exactly is going to be there? Are others in here as well. Um, what exactly is this going to do? It is a group that's going to look at regulations in the state of Georgia. 
and see if they can cut them. Their first report is not going to be due until June of 2020. They may give suggestions earlier, but basically the governor said he's formed this commission and he's told them to go after everything, look at all bureaucracy and all red tape in Georgia. And I think that is good. It's a good first step. Now, Georgia, to a degree, were benefited by even the Democrats that we've had elected in the state over the years have been largely pro-business. In fact, if anything, um, we've had a lot of Chamber of Commerce officials for all the talk about the divisiveness of uh, social conservatives and the Christians who want religious liberty and whatnot. The Chamber of Commerce has largely uh, ruled over Georgia through the legislature and the governors for a number of years. Brian Kemp being the first uh, real, well, he's the first governor in a long time the Chamber of Commerce hasn't rallied behind. Uh, They stayed out of it between Kemp and Stacey Abrams. They really wanted Cagle and didn't get their way. They were upset with Kemp for promising religious liberty legislation, uh, which shows you where the chamber is. Nonetheless, um, Georgia has had a pretty good climate for business. The problem Georgia has had most significantly is that it has tended to treat big business and small business differently. So your mom and pop shop and whatnot may not be able to have as much access to government and access to capital, frankly, as your major corporations. This government in Georgia, with the Chamber and others for a number of years, has spent a lot of time and money luring businesses into the state of Georgia and ignoring businesses already in Georgia uh, to their detriment. And Kemp wants to change that. He wants to be very small business focused. And one of the reasons I think, uh, just based on conversations I've had with him and others in the past, and even the things he said on this radio program, is we've had a history in Georgia of Republican and Democrat governors and legislatures custom designing packages to lure Fortune 500 companies into Georgia, giving them incentives we've given no other businesses. And along the way, a regulatory structure has cropped up as well, and that regulatory structure has benefited those big businesses and hasn't necessarily benefited small businesses in the state. So forming this commission, if anything, will be a good way to try to level the playing field Because I'm a big believer in capitalist disruption. The little guy should have a great shot of becoming the big guy. And the little guy can't become the big guy when the big guy stacks the deck against the little guy in terms of regulation and uh, capital overreach and things. The role of the government when it comes to capitalism should be to ensure a level playing field. And unfortunately, we've gotten into this crony capitalist area, I shouldn't say area, uh, era, where big businesses use the tax code, regulations, and bureaucrats to protect them from ever being competed against effectively. So one reason I'm not a big fan of all the regulatory proposals on Facebook, Google, and the like is what's going to happen with those regulations is Facebook, Google, and the like are going to hire lobbyists. The lobbyists are going to help shape the regulations. And guess what? We're going to find that the regulations ultimately make it very, very difficult for anyone to compete against them. And we wind up locking in their existing status. And I think that's not the way to do it. And kudos to Governor Kemp and others for recognizing that and here starting a commission to make sure that big businesses and small businesses together can benefit from getting rid of some of the bureaucracy and regulations in the state. I always have to laugh when we go into commercial break 
and I check email, Twitter, whatnot during commercial time and see everyone has responded to something. And so, yes, believe it or not, for the last several weeks, I have been trying to find a roast chicken recipe that I, I really like and that I think people can make without screwing up. And roasting a chicken is one of those things that should be easy, except it's not. Uh, and it's not in large part because everybody's oven is different. And if you want to roast it in the oven, you can, some, some recipes tell you, for example, to start it at 400 up to 450 and then turn it down to 350. Others tell you to roast constantly at 350 or 400 or 425 or whatever. Some tell you to use butter. Some tell you don't use butter. Some tell you not to have anything with it. Um, so I've actually been working on this for the last several weeks and what sort of rub did I like and how would it impact uh, if I wanted to put vegetables with it. And so I'm, I, you know, I, I do that recipe email. If you're not a subscriber and I basically once a week, all uh, Wednesdays, usually at 12, 15, except I forgot today. I forgot today was Wednesday. Uh, I sent out a recipe and, and no ads don't sell the list, anything like that. It's, it's nothing to make money off of. It's just, if you're a regular listener of this program, you know that I more and more am convinced that, uh, people don't cook enough. Uh, they go out to eat, uh, they have community breakdown, they don't invite people over to their house, and frankly, I think there are a lot of us who may disagree on politics, but could find common ground around the dinner table and conversation, and so this is my small way to encourage people to break bread together, even if you disagree on politics. Frankly, I think you should have friends who disagree with you on politics. I, I try to make sure I maintain friendships with people who disagree with me on politics because then you have the richest conversations because you, you can't talk about that aspect of life. And it's an all-consuming aspect of life these days. So you can talk about something else around the dinner table. So in any event, I, I really, I, I have, I, my family is tired of roast chicken because I have been roasting chickens. Uh, and I finally came up with one that I like. Uh, you cook it in a 12-inch skillet in the oven. Uh, yeah, skillet, not a roasting pan, uh, on top of baby carrots. And you use garlic and butter and paprika and cumin and coriander. I mean, you can't go wrong with garlic, cumin, coriander, salt, and pepper anyway. Um, but I will, I'll send that out. It's actually really, really easy. Cooks in about 40 minutes to an hour, depending on how cold the chicken is. But the, the secret I discovered, interestingly enough, is that you do need to brine the chicken, um, preferably overnight. Uh, and I use brown sugar and salt. And the cool thing about it is that even if you overcook the chicken, you're not going to dry it out so much because it's been brined. It'll stay juicy. But also as it cooks, the the brine that it has not been released uh, will release in the process of cooking and will cook the carrots and make them salty, sweet. It's really good. So if you want the recipe, you can text the word recipe to 345-345, and I will have that out tomorrow. Now, when we come back, uh, you know, I, I wrote I was going to support the president. A lot of people have been asking me why I haven't talked about it, why I'm doing it, what's changed. And so I will dedicate the last bit of this program tonight to explain why I went from saying never Trump in 2016 to 2020 saying I'll get out on the campaign trail for you, Mr. President and give you my explanation. I try never to actually let the listeners set the agenda of the show, and I don't mean for that to sound arrogant, just uh, this is my show. Um, and if you want your own show, go get your own show. 
But I, every once in a while, there's a flood of topics or a flood of requests that come in, and I really can't help it. And this is one of those times where a ton of people have asked if I would please explain why I have written that I will be supporting the president, vice president, 2020 after being so adamant in 2016. And many of them, the, the premise is what changed? What changed between 2016 and, and 2020 to make me think otherwise? Uh, particularly, this has come from a lot of people who voted for the president in 2016. And, and why couldn't I have gone along then? There are a number of reasons for this, and I might as well take the time to answer it as best I can. Uh, number one, I still think character counts. I think character counts pretty dramatically. Uh, and in 2016, I was very concerned with the number of particularly Christian evangelicals, of which I consider myself one, who were trying to justify their voting for the president by he's a Cyrus, he's a, he's, he's a second coming of, of somebody from the Bible, and the Bible justifies it, and on and on. And well, You know, there's actually... A pretty clear scriptural precedent there in the New Testament that if someone holds themselves out as a Christian and says they've never repented, you shouldn't have anything to do with them. And the president, in fact, at, at multiple points held himself out as a Christian and, and has said to this day, he said he's never felt the need to repent of anything. And I was really, really dismayed by the number of Christians who were willing to, to rush through and say, you know what, we can vote for this guy. Uh, so I took the position character counts. Uh, he's not a Republican. He is a lifelong Democrat. He's given money to Nancy Pelosi. And he, he during 2016, let's also not forget, in the general election, in addition to running on tariffs, which he has implemented, he was defending Planned Parenthood, saying they did good things. He was saying they we should tax the rich. Uh, to to pay for things that we don't need to do entitlement reform, all these things that the Democrats have said, and I just between the two of them, wasn't going to vote for him. And the character issue really did and still does matter to me. Now, fast forward. Uh, the president is no longer hypothetical, and he has abandoned taxing the wealthy. He has been willing to fight Planned Parenthood. It's still funded, uh, but he's been fighting on that front as well. He's done tax cuts. He's redirected American foreign policy towards a uh, very grown-up policy, for example, in uh, Venezuela, taking on that issue. He's walked us back from the Iran deal. He has walked out of the Paris Accord. He's moved the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, as other presidents promised and only he delivered. He's continued to wage war aggressively against terrorists, although he is thinking of bringing troops home out of Afghanistan, and I support that. The president's done a very good job with appointments uh, to the executive and the exec, uh, judiciary. He's done a great regulatory rollback. He has implemented very good policies. And ultimately what it comes down to is at this point, I realize that I'm in the minority. You know, I always tell people that uh, be sure what you believe, but understand when you're in the minority or in the majority. And I'm in the minority on the issue of character. I think character should count way more than it does. And a very large majority of Americans have decided it doesn't matter that much. And so I'm left with options. And my options at this point are, do I just sit it out? Well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, do I go third party? I tried that in 2016, and that guy's gone nuts. I mean, I'm deeply embarrassed for having even voted for that guy. Do I go Democrat? Absolutely not. Uh, so where does that leave me? It leaves me as a Republican. And there aren't going to be any Republicans challenging the president, I don't believe, at this point. If they do, they're going to be people to the left of the president, and I'm to the right of the president on a host of issues. 
So that leaves me with the president. I'll support the president. I still think character matters. But what I find from the people who are thinking they'll vote Democrat because they don't like the president's character is it's not character that counts for them. It's demeanor. I don't care for the president's demeanor or his character. But there are a lot of people who are willing to turn a blind eye to the Democrats' really bad character uh, because they're happy with their demeanor. I mean, the Democrats are the people who support infanticide, and just because they do it with a smile on their face and without Twitter outbursts does not mean that they have good character. So I'm with the president here. Hope that explains it for you. Now, completely relevant to that, what I just said here, I have a letter from a lady in Lawrenceville, Miss Taylor. She tried to mark out her name and did a bad job of it. I'm assuming a senior citizen, and I believe I should read her letter in its entirety to you. Dear Eric, would you please, please slow the hell down? You talk like an ADHD-afflicted 12-year-old after three espressos, except when reciting an ad, of course. Apparently, you think it's more important for your listeners to know about your sponsors than about the day's issues. You need speed bumps on your tongue. You're worse than Rush, and that ain't easy. I feel compelled to read that to you. I had about four minutes. I wanted to get all of that out. So I rushed through it. I realized you can always go to the com, or, you know, you can text the word show to 444-999, get the podcast and you can slow me down. <laughs> but I appreciate it very much. Your feedback, Miss Taylor. Now we have a commercial break. Okay, so before we get out of here tonight, there's, I don't even know how to get into this. So Amy Klobuchar, you know, the the stories that are coming out about Amy Klobuchar, she's the senator from Minnesota who's running. Um, she'll be the next Tim Pawlenty from Minnesota, I guess. In, in any event, there are a number of stories that have come out about her that she's very bad with her staff, that the staff don't like her. Some staffers have come out and said that they do like her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a story out today that she made her staff shave her legs. And I got to tell you, I read this story the first time and I thought, what's wrong with making the women on your staff shave their legs? Now, you can call me a misogynist all you want, but I I don't have a problem with you telling your staff that, you know, you got to shave your legs. But I got the story wrong. That's not the story at all. The story is that she made the staff shave her legs. They had to shave Amy Klobuchar's legs. <laughs> How disgusting. Um, uh, apparently someone's come forward and said that this was, uh, they, the TV series on HBO Veep, that they got the idea for a scene where someone had to shave the Veep's legs, uh, from Amy Klobuchar's staff. Um, but uh, now others have come forward just in full disclosure. Others have now come forward today and said that the guy who's reporting this said similar things about Hillary Clinton and he's unreliable, but you know. She's going to have to deal with the staffing issues and treating people. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like there's an angle here for her to say she has very high standards. 
and she has been able to build bipartisan street cred by having those high standards and expects her staff to keep those high standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's certainly a way she can turn this on its head. And it's just a whole fascinating dynamic there, these rumors starting to leak out about her. The biggest rumor that's leaking out about her, though, that I find most interesting is Democrats' grievance against her is that Republicans like her. And because Republicans like her, she must therefore be bad, which is just fascinating uh, to, to see that dynamic there. All right, we are out of time. Uh, tomorrow, I will be back. I'm sure we'll have more. Maybe the president will not. Uh, will change his mind on the border wall. But, you know, I've talked to enough people in the White House, including last night and this morning, that it looks like the president's going to sign that he doesn't like it. He may go the next step. He's already putting in place next steps to begin building the wall, but uh, he's probably going to sign this deal and find a way to add to the wall. I'll keep you posted. In the meantime, you can go to theresurgent.com every day and text the word SHOW to 444-999 to get the daily podcast. See you guys tomorrow.